Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. This week, Chris Smith and Helen Scales will be bringing us the latest in science news. Coming up, the scientific reason for savouring your food. Scientists have discovered that when people eat slowly, more appetite-suppressing hormones are released, and that means you're actually less likely to want to keep on eating than if you scoff your food really quickly. A Californian company develop a new super-fast, super-cheap method for sequencing genomes. They have a new technique which has enabled them, at a price tag of just $2,000 and two weeks, to sequence three people's genomes. So it takes about two weeks and $2,000 per genome. So they're basically doing it in a quarter of the time of the competition and at about a twentieth of the cost. And how newborn babies cry with an accent. We think that this, this observed behaviour is just simply a reflection of the special aptitude human infants have to acquire language. They are hardwired to acquire language. We know that they have a special sensitivity for melodies and rhythms already being a fetus and then also being born. That's all on the way. Now, Chris, did your mother ever tell you not to eat your food too quickly? Well, frequently. But, uh, <laughs> well, she did. But her and cooking my... was so bad that she didn't need to give me that advice. Oh, I'm just joking. that's not very nice. Anyway, um, well, if she did, it turns out that isn't just an old wives' tale, but actually she, your mother probably was actually onto something. Scientists have discovered that when people eat slowly, more appetite-suppressing hormones are released, and that means you're um, actually less likely to want to keep on eating than if you scoff your food really quickly. Now, this study came from a team from Imperial College in London and the Athens University Medical School in Greece and they published the study in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism and what they did was um, was they cr- they recruited a group of volunteers and they were asked to not eat anything for 10 hours before they came into the laboratory and they were given um, 300 millilitres of ice cream to eat. It doesn't say what flavour, <laughs> but uh, it was about 670 calories worth of ice cream. That's a big portion. It's a big bowlful. I think it's, yeah, it's a good bowlful of ice cream. And on two separate occasions, um, these volunteers were asked to eat the ice cream either um, in five minutes. I think it, it, was, it, it was divided into two lumps and you were allowed to eat one lump in, in a minute and then wait four minutes and eat the second lump um or you're also asked they're also asked to nibble it slowly over half an hour and um, by just stop it melting <laughs> i think what they did was they divided the ice cream into seven portions right and presumably kept the ones you weren't eating in the freezer. And every five minutes they were given one of these portions and asked to eat it within a minute so that they were eating it at a regular pace during that whole So in other words, hour. you've got the sort of binge <clears throat> version versus the more sustained, slow, make-it-last-longer approach to exactly, eating. Exactly, exactly. So, so Homer um, Simpson versus the more sedate <laughs> manner more, of eating. The more refined at dining, exactly. Um, and what they did was, before the experiment began, and then um, during it, and for up to three hours afterwards, um, levels of blood hormones were measured in the in the volunteers. And these uh, were hormones including something called uh, ghrelin, PYY, and a glucagon-like peptide, or P- uh, GLP-1. And uh, these are all things that are produced in the gastrointestinal tract um, in response to food being eaten. And they all act on part of the brain called the hypothalamus. 
thalamus and they were all known to play an important role in mediating how hungry we feel and how full we feel. So a really important part of how much energy we take on, you know, how hungry do you feel, how much food do you think you want to be eating? And uh, the volunteers were also asked to um, reply to standardised questions about how full or hungry they felt at different points throughout the study. And what they found was that um, two of those hormones, PYY and GLP-1, were both in much higher concentrations in the volunteers who ate slowly compared to the fast eaters. And, um, and they also, the, the slow eaters, uh, also felt much full. Um, much more full after they'd eaten their ice cream nice and slowly. So really it seems that when you eat more slowly, your guts are actually better at telling your brain that it's time to stop eating, that you've had, you've had a good meal, you know, that's enough, um, you can stop now. And actually other past studies have suggested a link between fast eating and um, body weight in adults and children. And this study is now really the first evidence of, of a real physiological link between those two phenomena. So um, really, it perhaps it pays to listen to your mother and uh, we could all perhaps benefit from enjoying our food rather than wharfing it right down. I suppose that also explains why uh, there's such a problem with things like sugary drinks because what they do is to put enormous amounts of energy into you very, very quickly before you've had a chance to then realise how many calories you've taken on board. And this means you're more likely to overindulge from a calorie point of view because your brain doesn't get the signal to stop taking in the energy until obviously a lot lot has gone in. Yes, I think obviously this is the beginning of really understanding what's going on and it's just one type of food and we can imagine that there's lots more studies to be done, different types of food, you know, different combinations of bulk and so on. But um, but it's certainly an interesting idea of, of, of what makes us want to keep on eating and what says, you know, I've had enough ice cream now, I'll put the rest back in the freezer. Well, some people say that uh, body mass index how much you weigh, is in your genes. And in order to find out answers to questions like that, we need to be able to sequence everyone's genetic code. Now, that was the promise of something called pharmacogenomics, the idea of tailoring the treatment you receive, predicting the diseases you're going to get on the basis of what's written into your DNA. The big problem with this is that the Human Genome Project, to sequence about one person, cost $100 million dollars. And it took many years. So the race has been on for a long time since to try to find very cost-effective, very fast and very accurate ways to sequence very big genomes, like the human genome, all three billion DNA letters of it, very quickly. And there's a paper in Science this week which could offer some prospect of that becoming reality. It's a company in California. I spoke to them earlier this week. They're called Complete Genomics. And they have a new technique which has enabled them at a price tag of just $2,000 and two weeks to sequence three people's genomes. So it takes about two weeks and $2,000 per genome. But they've done it for three people and they get very, very high accuracy. The technique's very complicated, but... I can attempt to explain how it works because it's incredibly elegant. What they do is they take the genome, so the entire genetic code of a person, they chop it up into little chunks, each about 400 DNA letters along, and then they insert between each of those little chunks special sections which are adapters, as they're known. These are pieces of DNA with a very specific sequence, and they link these back together into small circles. So they've basically broken up the genetic code into lots of little circles into which are inserted these special adapter sequences. They then take that solution of DNA and dot it onto a special chip. This is about the size of a microscope slide, and they can get one billion dots of DNA onto this using a very accurate precision-made tool that puts the dots down. And 
the DNA before they do that is made into what they call DNA nanoballs. So they basically copy the circles with a special enzyme called Phi29 many times. It just goes round and round around the circle, making lots of single-stranded DNA. These stick onto the slide, and then they use a very clever laser-driven technique to sequence the DNA. So what they'll do is they, first of all, add... um, some probes and these probes first of all bind onto the adapter sequence so they register they line up the adapter and they lock on and then in the probe there is a special dna base that recognizes whatever genetic letters are next door to the probe and they flash a certain color and they can do this enough times and read it off with a laser because they're processing a billion samples at once on the slide they can get through lots and lots of dna quickly and all the time they've got a computer working out what the genetic sequence is and by lining up all the different genetic sequences they can begin to see which bits overlap with what and piece back together a whole genome so it's really the whole genome that they're sequencing yes that's extraordinary and this has so many applications if you're really talking about quickly and cheaply doing a whole genome of not just people but Well, I phoned up um, Dennis Ballinger, who is one of the vice presidents of the company, and I said, how would this compare with other competitors? Because there are other ways to sequence the genome on the market. Mm. There are other other people doing similar things. And he came up with uh, probably what he thought was the most likely competitor and said that their figures stated earlier in the year were to do the same job to sequence the whole genome but it cost them forty thousand dollars and it took them two months to do it so they're basically doing it in a quarter of the time of the competition and at about 20 a 20th of the cost it's amazing absolutely amazing well how could i resist this week um a really brilliant shark story that hit the science news headlines and it was a study by american researchers who have been tracking nearly 200 great white sharks over the last decade as they swim around the pacific ocean now this was published by the royal society in this their Series B journal. And the study was a big team of researchers led by Salvador Jorgensen from Stanford University in the US. And they revealed some important secrets about these amazing beasts, including pinpointing their favourite mid-ocean hangout, a spot of sea in between Hawaii and the Californian coast. And they've nicknamed this the Shark Cafe. And they really have. That's in their paper. It's not just the news people calling it that. That's what they put in their papers, Shark Cafe. And uh, the team basically went about uh, using a combination of satellite tagging technology. They went out and tagged a whole load of great whites with these um, very cutting-edge satellite tags. They also used acoustic tags, which um, are actually sensed by detectors that are placed around different areas, a lot of them along the Californian coast and also across the rest of the Pacific. And then also DNA analysis samples, um, DNA samples were taken from wild sharks. And what Jurgensen and the team discovered was that every winter, sharks in this population in the northeast Pacific regularly migrate away from the coast coastal waters of California and they swim for over 4,000 kilometres to the warm waters of Hawaii and then in the summer, following summer, they go all the way back again. Why? I mean, it's, it's a, a very, very long way for them to go, <laughs> isn't it? It's a very long way Used to go. Use a lot of energy, so exactly. there must be some benefit, but why do they do that? Exactly. Well, we'd all love to spend our winters in Hawaii, I'm sure, but uh, why do the sharks do it? And the answer, unfortunately, is we don't really know, but the researchers think that the sharks are probably going to Hawaii to eat, and the sh- that some of the tags were showing them that the sharks were regularly diving down very deep, which is probably showing that they were actually hunting for prey. And as for this mid-ocean 
Ocean Shark Cafe. Well, what was going on there? Well, it seems that they were probably feeding there as well, but probably mating. And that was what it um, was shown by the fact that lots of the males and females were mingling at this shark um, cafe. And at about the right time, that could um, be for the females to get pregnant before they go and give birth um, in nursery grounds um, further east. Because, you know, great white sharks gestate for 12 months or maybe as much as 18 months. It's an extraordinary long time that these um, sharks are pregnant for. And they for. give life birth. And they give life birth. It's amazing. Um, and uh, they've also shown, um, this study also showed that some of these sharks keep coming back to the exact same bits of coastal habitat off um, the American coast. And we think it's probably because they can hunt more successfully in areas of sea that they know very well when they get to know them. That's good. And what they've also shown um, is that this is, a, this is a separate population. These northeast Pacific sharks don't mingle with the Australian sharks or with the South African sharks. And that's really important information for conservationists because even though lots of us, well, lots of people are still scared at the idea of these big, huge predators, they are sadly facing quite an uncertain future because of overfishing and their fins are very valuable in the trade for shark's fin soup. So really what this study is doing is picking out some of these really vital details about their lives and highlighting that they aren't simply mindless killing machines that mill around aimlessly, but these are animals that undergo complex migrations and we're only just really beginning to understand them. And uh, scratch the surface. It's amazing how much is hidden from view beneath the surface of the sea. Thank you, Helen. Now, also this week, scientists at the University of Würzburg in Germany have teamed up with their colleagues in Leipzig and also in Paris, and they found that the cries that young and newborn babies emit actually mirror their mothers' accents. And to tell us how they've discovered that, we're joined now by Kathleen Wurmke, who's the head of the Centre for Pre-Speech Development and Development Disorders, and she's at the University Hospital of Würzburg. Hello, Kathleen. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Thank you. Um, What's this study actually show? The study actually show an extremely early impact of of the surrounding nat- of the surrounding language of native language a fetus was exposed to in the womb, and this is of course new because we 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 knew since many researchers an- investigated that during the last years that there that infants are sensitive to prosodic features of the native language long before they are born and that they memorize those patterns as a newborn, but it, is, it was not known that they are capable so early also not only to memorize, but also to reproduce those patterns in their own cries. How did you do the study? We recorded the cries of the newborns in Paris and in Berlin and Germany, and then we um, came back to our lab- laboratory, acoustic lab, and we analyzed the frequency spectrograms and the melody contours of the cries, normalized type cry time because not each cry has the same duration and then we looked for at what time point the pitch maximum the melody maximum was reached for that more at the beginning or more at the end of a cry and so we could compare between the groups of German and French infants according to their melody contour having either a rising or a falling contour. Shall we have a listen to some of them? Okay. Well, you sent us some of the recordings you made. So, first of all, I'll play the rising cry. Okay. Play that again. And and here's a falling cry. So that's basically one that goes down at the end rather than going up as it goes along. How does that mirror the native language spoken by the mothers of those babies? Uh, it mirrors it because French intonation is, uh, intonation is characterized by a pitch rise toward the end of several kinds of prosodic units, uh, words or phrases, whereas uh, German uh, typically exhibit a falling melody contour. 
And and so why do you think that the babies, when they've got a lot going on in their lives when they're newborns, why should they prioritise being able to mimic mum in this way? Why does this give them benefit? Uh, we think that this, this uh, observed behaviour is just simply a reflection of the special aptitude human infants have to acquire language. They are hardwired to acquire language, and we, are, we know that they have a special sensitivity for melodies and rhythms already being a fetus and then also being born. So we think this is just showing how early language development starts in human infants based on their, on their brain mechanisms and genetic programs to really to acquire language. Is this language that they're acquiring in utero? So while they're inside mum and towards the end of pregnancy, they're listening to the sounds and vibrations from her voice being transmitted to them while they're inside, and that's where they learn to mimic before they've even been born. Yeah, that's what we what we guess, because they, they are able to listen for three months at least, um, being in a womb, and they had only one or two days after delivery. But of course we are not sure, maybe this one or two days after delivery were enough to learn the specific intonation patterns of their surrounding language. We are not sure, but we guess that most important are the three months inter- prenatally. And in animals? Um, in animals, it is known that, that, that it is well known that they have already a lot of uh, prenatal auditive learning, but I'm uh, not sure if anybody uh, checked already the, the, the postnatal, the very, very early postnatal um, impact of those prenatal learning processes, but uh, I sure, I'm sure it should be observable in, in animals too. And one of the things you say in your paper is that if a baby sounds like mum, she's more likely to bond with it. Um, that seems reasonable. Uh, probably, yeah. We, we have no, of course we don't know, but according to the theoretical uh, implication that study and other studies have, uh, it might be that this really fosters bonding between the, the newborn and the mother, but it seems to be rather unintentional because, because being just a reflection of the... Of the uh, capabilities the human infant um, has from his uh, from his uh, genetic programs and behavioural uh, mechanisms. Thank you very much. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much, Kathleen. That was Kathleen Wermke, who's at the University of Würzburg. She was explaining how babies perceive the general tone of their native language and mimic it even before they're born. That's all we have for this Naked Scientist News Splash, which was produced by me, Ben Falsler, and featured Chris Smith, Helen Scales, and our guest, Dr. Kathleen Wermke. You can read all about these stories and more on our website at thenakedscientists.com, where you can also find all of our other podcasts. We'll be back with another roundup of science news very soon. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.